You know, normally the greeting time is followed by a song, and it's Darren's job to bring everyone back together. But this morning he was like, no, it's your turn, Matt. you got to corral the people and get us back. So here we go. You got, that was pretty good, though. Good. Well done. Um, so good to see you all here. Welcome on this uh, beautiful fall morning. A little cold. See a few usual first service folks that have maybe slept in, stayed in your warm bed a little longer to be here today with the second service. We welcome you. That's good. Um, hey, just you heard in the announcements, Operation Christmas Child is coming up and a walk through Bethlehem. And just wanted to mention those again briefly and how excited we are about what's coming up. And just so you guys see that as a church, we don't just do things uh, aimlessly or like any random thing. We're like, oh yeah, let's do that. We do think through why we do the things that we do. And uh, we use this as a grid. Again, we talk about these commitments pretty regularly, right? Worship, connect, grow, go. And so with a walk through Bethlehem and uh, Operation Christmas Child, those are opportunities essentially to, to, to go, uh, to live in this category with the mindset of how can we uh, share the gospel and the message and the love of Jesus with people outside of our church and outside of our building. And so a walk through Bethlehem is a chance to do that locally, where we try to engage with our community and help people who maybe aren't involved in church or haven't uh, really considered the gospel or the message of Jesus. We want a chance to engage with them and help them hear about Jesus. And so it's a really fun event coming up. Uh, So it's a chance to do that locally. And then the Operation Christmas Child is something where we send those boxes and those gifts and the message of Jesus uh, globally. And so uh, locally and globally, we're trying to, uh, to go. And so I hope you'll get involved with those efforts uh, this Christmas season. Now with that, as we prepare to jump into the Word, would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for another day of life and another Sunday to be together, gathered as the church, uh, as your people, Lord, to worship you, to praise you through our songs, and to now turn our attention to your word. God, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears, help us to see and hear uh, what you'd have for us this morning. Pray you'd guide us, bless our time, Lord, be glorified in all that happens here this morning. We love you, and we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you want to join me in Mark chapter 14, go ahead and turn there now in your copy of God's Word. Uh, We're not going to have the words on the screen again, and so I just want to encourage you to open up uh, your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be some on the seats in front of you, so you can grab one of those if you need, or follow along on your phone. We just want to be in the habit of opening up God's Word for ourselves, and so that's why we're not having the words on the screen. If you're new here, we take a little bit of time Uh, every week that we're together in worship to open up God's Word and just walk through a book of the Bible a little bit at a time. And so we've been in the Gospel of Mark for uh, a long time now, and uh, we're in chapter 14. And so verse 1 is where we're going to start today. You know, growing up, my dad would always give me this advice. He would say, Matt, the key to life is doing everything in moderation. Ever heard that? Everything in moderation. Live a balanced life. Don't overindulge. Don't get too crazy about anything, but live a balanced life of moderation. And uh, so growing up, I took that to heart, and I naturally was a little suspicious of anyone that was a little too 
over the top about anything. And we were, as a family, a little suspicious of people who we would label with the E word, extreme. <laughs> you know, those, those people, what a, what a quick way to be dismissive of someone, right? Like, they're, they're a little extreme. That family, they're a little over the top about that. And so, you know, I was, I've in, been into sports my whole life. I'm into sports now, but I was never one of those like paint your face, paint your body for the big game type of people. Like they were just a little too extreme for me, you know? Or I'm all about eating healthy and cutting unhealthy foods out of your diet. But, you know, sometimes people will do what's called the master cleanse. You heard about that? Where for, I think, a week or a month, or I don't know how long it is, but they eat nothing but cayenne pepper, maple syrup, and lemon juice, I think, and water. Like, that's it. That, it's a little extreme for me, people. If you've done that, it's okay. I'm just saying, for me, that's, that's a little extreme, right? I, I like the Chronicles of Narnia books and movies, uh, but I had some friends from, from high school who liked Narnia so much that they got tattoos on their inner lip that said Narnia. True story, true story, a little bit extreme, right? So I think that my dad's life advice about everything in moderation in general can be a, a good principle. However, when it comes to following Jesus, I think that that mindset or approach can actually be problematic. It can actually lead to half-hearted devotion, can lead to being stagnant in our faith, and it can leave us wondering whether we've really answered the call to follow or not. And this text this morning is going to challenge us to consider what a life of true devotion to Jesus will look like. So let's read the text to start in verse 1. Mark 14, verse 1, starts this way. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now, uh, as we've mentioned before, the setting here is important. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. He and his disciples are in the city of Jerusalem, along with other countless pilgrims who have made their way to to celebrate the Passover, which was this celebration every year where the people of God would remember God's faithfulness to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt. If you remember the story in the book of Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh, God brought the Jews out of slavery into freedom, and how he did that was he brought these plagues upon Egypt. And if you remember, the last plague, the death of the firstborn, came to the Egyptians, but the Jews, who had their doorposts painted with the blood of a lamb, were passed over. So at the time of Passover, they remember how God rescued them, how God was merciful to them, how God led them to freedom. And now it follows the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes right after, because as the Jews left Egypt, they went, did so so quickly and hastily that they didn't even have time to add a little leaven or yeast to their bread. And so to remember again the Passover and God's rescuing them, they eat unleavened bread for a number of days after the Passover. And so the people of God are in Jerusalem 
Some say that the population of the city swelled to about five times its normal size at this time of year because of this Passover. They're remembering God's faithfulness. And that's the backdrop to the conflict that we now see taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's reaching its peak. You notice verse 1 says they want to what? Arrest Jesus secretly. They want to kill him. They're scheming against him. We're not surprised at this point because we've seen for weeks how there's been tension and conflict and, and publicly these religious leaders are trying to trip Jesus up and trap him and make him look foolish and trying to deter people from following him, but nothing's working. The crowds love to listen to him, and so they say, this guy is a threat. We've got to get rid of him. He's a threat to our power. He's a threat to our way of life. It's a problem to get rid of. And so they want to do so secretly. You notice the text says that in verse 1, secretly. They're hesitant to kill him during this festival because if he's this popular potential Messiah, this potential Savior that the people are so fond of, then if they arrest and kill him, then that might make them rather unpopular with the people. It might cause a riot, might stir things up a little bit, so much so that maybe even the Romans will take notice of this skirmish and do something about it and come in and crack down on them, and so they're worried. Now, the section that we're looking at, uh, Mark 14, 1 to 11, is what's known as a Markin sandwich. You just want to say that together? A Markin sandwich. Anybody just get hungry? Now, this is uh, something that happens throughout the Gospel of Mark where the author intentionally weaves together these events in such a way that they bring out and contrast the different points that Jesus is trying to make. And so how he does that is these uh, first few verses are kind of like the the top piece of bread of a sandwich, okay? They're the the first section. Then there's going to be the meat of the sandwich that we're going to get to in a moment, or the the PB&J of the sandwich if you're vegetarian. And then he's going to come back to a similar idea that he started with for the bottom piece of bread of the sandwich, okay? So top piece of bread, then a new topic in between, and then he returns to a similar topic that he started with to make it stand out. And so verses 1 to 2, that's the top piece we just looked at. So I want to jump to the, the bottom of the sandwich, verses 10 to 11, and see kind of the two ends, okay? So verse 10 says this. Look at it with me. <clears throat> it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, so the passage starts, top piece of bread, scheming, plotting to arrest Jesus secretly, to kill Jesus, and it ends with Judas agreeing to betray Jesus and hand him over. He goes to the leaders and he joins their team, it seems, in exchange for money. See, if these leaders wanted to arrest Jesus secretly, they'd have to be able to find Jesus when he was away from the crowds, and this would likely be at night, and it would be dark and probably hard to see. There's probably a lot of guys running around Jerusalem with bushy beards this time of year, and so in order to identify Jesus, to arrest him, they needed an insider, someone who could lead the way and help them 
find him. And now they had such a person, someone who was willing to lead them away from the crowds in the light of day to arrest Jesus. Let's not miss how truly heinous this act is, how vile this action of Judas is. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the twelve. He's on the inner circle. I mean, it's one thing if the people out there don't like you or work against you, but one of your own? Turning on you. People have wondered, what motivated Judas? Why would he do such a thing? We see in the scriptures evidence of the the work of the enemy, Satan influencing Judas towards this. We see in the text and elsewhere his potential greed and desire for financial gain. Scholars also wonder if maybe he grew a little bit disillusioned with Jesus' kingdom agenda. You know, Judas wanted to follow a, a strong, victorious Messiah, a king. And Jesus comes on the scene talking about suffering, death. So maybe Judas says, I don't want any part of that. It's not going to work out well for me. So it it appears that Judas wasn't really following Jesus because he loved Jesus. He was following Jesus for something else that he got out of it. And so with these two pieces of bread in this section, we see that the chief priests and the teachers of the law and Judas, essentially, they just want to get rid of Jesus. He's in their way. He's threatening them all. So they're saying, let's get rid of this guy. And I think they're they're mirroring for us or helping us see a reflection of our own hearts at times. Now, sometimes it would be easier for us just to get rid of Jesus when he makes us uncomfortable. I mean, to put it rather eloquently, we don't want him to mess with us. We just want to live life how we see fit. I think this is sometimes why we drift away from the church or we drift away from community because when we're in community or when we come to a service and the word of God is preached and we hold one another accountable, that means that we're going to call one another to live a certain way. And so simply put, it's easier to be on our own and do things our own way without much accountability and without the word of God convicting us. Yes, it comforts us. But it also challenges us. And Jesus calls us to live differently, and sometimes we don't like that. When Jesus calls the the greedy to be generous, and the selfish to be others-oriented, when he calls the comfortable to be uncomfortable, and when he calls the immoral to be holy, and live lives of obedience. When he calls the violent to be peacemakers or the grudge holders to be those who forgive. When he calls the fearful to be courageous and the lazy to be hardworking and the overworking to be people who rest. When he calls those with power to care for the powerless and the vulnerable. In these situations and countless others were tempted to say, you know what, Jesus, I'd rather not. So we say, let's, let's get rid of him. 
So the question for us is, well, when conflict arises between how we want to live and how Jesus calls us to live, how will we respond? Will we respond with obedience, recognizing the authority of the king? Or will we say, you know what, let's just get rid of this guy. Now, sometimes we hear this, and our minds immediately go to people out there. You know, the, the people out there, the, our, our pagan neighbors, or our, uh, you know, heathen co-workers. And if you're a pagan neighbor and you're here, welcome. <laughs> Glad you're here. Really, but sometimes us church folk, we're like, those are the people who need to hear this. It's the ungodly people who don't care about religion or they don't care about church or they want nothing to do with Jesus. You know, it's the really bad sinners out there. They're the ones that need to hear this. But notice in the text, who are the bad guys? Who are the people in the text as the negative examples? Is it the the morally questionable or the the scandalous people out there or the promiscuous or the immoral heathen co-workers or your pagan neighbors that don't care about religion? Is that who's the bad guys here? No. I mean, we're talking about the chief priests. We're talking about the teachers of the law. We're talking about Bible scholars, men devoting their whole lives to religion. These are the good church folks, the principled Bible-believing folks that are saying, let's get rid of Jesus because he's trouble. We've got to be careful when it's easy to say, oh, this is a message for them. It is possible to be religious, do the church thing, but really miss the heart of what Jesus is all about. Now, if that's the bread of the sandwich, we've got to look at the middle. What's the meat of the sandwich? Take a look at verse 3 with me. In between these two stories, we see this. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. And so amidst this scheming and plotting to kill Jesus, and amidst this betrayal of Jesus, Mark shows us an example to the contrary, an example of faithfulness that we should follow. Jesus is staying outside the city of Jerusalem, in the town of Bethany, as many pilgrims to the area would do at the time of Passover, and we're introduced to this unnamed woman. It's not her house. This is not her guest. And yet she boldly comes into the room. She takes this jar of perfume. It's very costly. She breaks it, pours it on Jesus. The room would have been filled with the scent There'd be no way to miss this gesture. See, in in the Jewish world, a guest of honor would be often anointed with oil. A king would be anointed with oil. One who was set aside for special service to God would be anointed with oils or perfumes to be uh, recognized as their 
for their special role in God's agenda. It was a sign of blessing, a sign of honor. So this gesture from the woman goes far above and beyond what would have been reasonable, what would have been expected, even for a guest of honor, because you see all the disciples' reaction, right? What do they do? They're indignant. They look at what this woman has done. They say, what a waste. A year's wages, all gone. How could she be so, so reckless, so irresponsible to do such a costly thing to Jesus? So you see that this act of devotion is extravagant. It's costly. I mean, it says it may have been about a year's wages. That's a lot of money she just gave up in order to do this. The jar might have been a family keepsake, maybe a status symbol for them. Maybe for her family, it was kind of a nest egg in case of financial trouble. And this isn't like a a modern perfume jar, you know, just a little and she like keep you know she didn't just come over to Jesus like and like still has all the rest. She broke the jar and it all poured out. One time use. This alabaster jar would have been sealed to preserve its freshness and it's broken. And it's all spent in one shot. And the disciples are are shocked. Angry, rebuking her. Jesus responds. Verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says, leave her alone, guys. She's done something beautiful to me. And then he says, you'll always have the poor with you, which is a a phrase that's been misunderstood and taken to mean, oh, well, so it doesn't really matter about caring for the poor. They're always going to be around, so don't worry about it, which is not what Jesus is saying. And actually, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. It says, the poor will always be with you. And then it goes on to immediately say, so you should care about the poor and be open-handed to them and be generous to them. So this isn't some kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card. Look, Jesus said we don't have to care for the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to downplay our responsibility to care for the poor. He's trying to highlight just the significance of this act, that this woman has done something so special to him, honored him in such a way. He's not going to be around on earth in this form forever, he's saying. I won't always be with you in that sense. He's soon going to die, right? And so the anointing that we talked about for a king or for someone set aside for service to God or an honored guest, that's one sense that this anointing functions in. But also, he says, it has to do with my burial. The perfume on him is a preparation for burial. He's pointing forward in verse 8 to his death. As people would take the bodies of their loved ones and wrap them and put special ointments and perfumes and spices to preserve the bodies in such a way, things that would smell good as they were prepared for burial. And so Jesus is speaking of his 
coming death. And he's saying, she might not have known that she was doing this, but this is pointing forward to my burial. It's prepared me in some sense. And so he's saying, guys, she understands something here that you all are missing. She gets it in a way that you don't. And so can we just have a shout out to the ladies for a minute? Shout out to the ladies in the room. Oftentimes, us guys are maybe a little slow on, uh, to pick up certain things. And you guys, you ladies, catch on to things a little bit quicker than we do. You're like, we know. Um, but, but really, we see this in the text. This, this woman, she gets it. And this is not like some isolated incident. Actually, throughout the Gospels, we'll see these examples of, of women getting it before the men do. And the men kind of look like goofs sometimes, honestly. And the women are these examples of, of faithfulness. In a couple chapters, we're going to see Jesus dying on a cross. His disciples have fled, but, but the women are standing by. And the women are the first to witness the resurrection. The first ones to go and herald the good news that he is raised from the dead. A couple chapters beforehand, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus points to this widow. This poor widow. Throws in a couple coins into the treasury. He says, she's the example I want you to follow. All the men in that story, the religious leaders, trying to kill Jesus, they're corrupt. They don't understand, but he says, he singles her out. He says, she gets it. Think about John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus has this amazing interaction, this woman has this amazing interaction with Jesus. She gets it and she goes and tells everyone, come and see this man who's told me everything I've ever done. She brings out her whole village. They spend time with Jesus. Right before that encounter in John chapter 3, you remember the story there? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a man in the nighttime who doesn't get it, who's confused and embarrassed to be around Jesus. And those stories are told back to back for a reason. They're almost exact opposites if you go and study them. And it's showing that that this woman gets it. And then we see in, in this text here, notice all the men that are mentioned miss it. The chief priests and the scribes are trying to kill Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. The other disciples rebuke this woman harshly for what she's doing. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. She gets it. She's the example of faithfulness and godliness that I want you to see and learn from. I don't think all these examples are random. (laughs) I, I think that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired the scriptures, is trying to show to us over and over again the value, the importance of, of women. Think about it. I think sometimes we live in a world where, where the insights or the contributions or the gifts of women are, are valued somewhat less than those of men. Sometimes that happens in the world at large. Sometimes that even happens in church world. I'm not saying that's always the case, but definitely some of us have been guilty of that mindset. So notice, Jesus is pointing out these women. The Holy Spirit wants us to see this contrast that women, ladies, we need you and your gifts and your contributions to the kingdom. We need you to serve, so please don't 
ever believe the lie that you're less valuable, less worthy of being used by God, less capable of modeling godliness and setting the bar? Because Jesus is pointing to this woman saying, she's the example I want you to follow. we got to get this. And the point is, man, the point is not that like, we're all evil and never understand anything or miss the boat all the time, but I think how easy it would have been just to overlook women in the ancient world, how easy it can be at times to overlook women in culture. Unfortunately, that happens. The Holy Spirit is trying to say, no, no. Men and women alike bear the image of God. Men and women alike are co-laborers for the cause of the gospel. So look to this woman. And so Jesus says, verse 9, wherever the gospel is preached, her actions will be told in memory of her. She never says a word, but she will be spoken of as the gospel is shared, whether it's in India or England or Australia or Africa or Afghanistan or Benicia, California in 2018. We celebrate the gospel and we look to the example of this woman. Why? Why does Jesus say that as the gospel is preached, this will be shared as well in memory of her? Because we remember what the gospel tells us, that we, though, though sinful, deserving of judgment, deserving of wrath and separation from God for our sins, God, in his mercy and in his grace, sent his son Jesus to take the penalty for our sins, to carry our sins with him to the cross, to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins and freed from slavery to sin and given new life and the Spirit of God in us be washed and cleansed and reconciled to God. The Bible uses the language of going from death to life when we put our faith in Christ. Going from slavery to freedom when we put our faith in Christ. Being adopted into the family of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice. And so this woman, she shows us what a heart that understands that gospel looks like. She gets it. She sees who this Jesus is. Because this passage is about the woman and her example, but even more, it's about Jesus. It's showing us how Jesus is worthy of this extravagant sacrifice. He's worthy of this woman's complete devotion. He's the king of the universe. He's the savior of the world. There's no gift that we could bring that would be too extreme. It would be too big of a sacrifice to give to the Lord. So she says, Jesus, you're worth everything. And you know, she's not motivated out of compulsion. This certainly wasn't expected certainly wasn't required of her, and yet she freely, out of her love for him, sacrifices the most costly thing in her life to him. Jesus, because of who you are and how you love me, I will freely give myself to you. So again, the question for us is, do we love the Lord the way the woman in this story loves the Lord? I mean, has following Jesus cost us Anything? Has it been costly to walk with him? Or for us, do we again just get our little 
little spray bottle of perfume and just, hey, Jesus. <laughs> I honor you, Jesus. Thanks. I'm going to go over here now. No, do we break the bottle? I'm not going to break it. Do we break the bottle and let it all pour out and say, Jesus, you're worthy of it all? So I wonder if, if our lives cause others to say, what a waste. What are you doing with your life? Giving that time away? Your devotion, your might to, to this Jesus, to this gospel? What are you doing? Do you realize what you could be doing with your life? Realize how much fun you could be having? How much fulfillment you could find elsewhere? Can we say, no, you, you don't understand. This Jesus is worth everything and more. You know, I really think when we see this example, I think we want to be like this woman. Aren't we inspired when we hear stories like hers and when we hear about the family that goes on the mission field and sacrifices everything so that they can follow Jesus and share the gospel and risk their lives? Don't we get inspired by that? Or when we see families that live locally and realize that we're on the mission field here. We don't have to go far away to share the gospel. There are people here in our backyard who don't know Jesus. So how can we live on mission here and love our neighbors here and make the priority of our family, priority of our home, to make much of Jesus, to reach out to those in need, to welcome people in, even if it means it's inconvenient and uncomfortable, we will prioritize the cause of Christ. Don't we get inspired when we see examples of generosity, People who boldly share their faith and risk being insulted. People who are busy but still make time to serve and to lead and to give of themselves that others might know Christ and that the church might be built up. I think when we see that, we're like, wow. I want to be like that. It's a little scary maybe. It's a little costly. But we say, I want to live like this. So I just encourage you, encourage us to think about, all right, Lord, if you're setting before us this woman as an example of what it means to follow you with extravagant devotion, costly sacrifice because you're worth it, what should that look like in our lives? Is there something we need to give up, Lord, to more fully follow you? As we think through, again, these categories, Lord, are we worshiping you? Are we connecting with other believers as your word calls us to? Again, sometimes just the commitment to go to a small group each week, that's costly. That's a night of the week every week. People could look at you. Are you, are you, are you sure you want to do that? That's what, there's a lot of Christians there, right? They're, they're kind of goofy. Are you sure you want to go do that? Like, yes, because <laughs> I need that. I need to grow. I need to study the Word. I need fellowship. Man, are we growing? Are we serving? Again, there's, I look out. I see so many of you serving in so many ways. So encouraged by the way that you guys give and teach and jump into our kids' ministry and our student ministry. You say, we want the next generation to know the Lord, and so we're going to invest in them. So yeah, I can give a couple hours on a Sunday to serve. Of course. How could I not? So I don't know what that next step needs to look like for you. Maybe it's getting involved in Walk Through Bethlehem, inviting neighbors and friends to come and check it out, taking a risk in that way. I encourage you to pray about it and consider what it looked like to, to follow the example of this woman. Now, the reason I think Mark has set the sandwich up this way is, again, really to contrast 
the, uh, the Judas, basically, and this woman. Okay, think about it. Think about the contrast. It, they couldn't be more different. It's so vivid. On one side, we have Judas. He's one of the 12 disciples. We know his name. He's an insider. On the other side, we have this, this woman who's unnamed. John later tells us her name, but Mark intentionally leaves it out. Not even mentioned. He goes to the, the chief priest, those in power in Jerusalem. She's outside the city in Bethany, the home of a leper in obscurity. The chief priests hear what Judas wants to do. They're delighted at his choice and his actions. The, the disciples hear what the woman does. They're irritated, agitated, angry with her sacrifice. And yet we'll remember Judas forever as a betrayer. And we'll remember the woman forever as the gospel goes forth as an example of faithfulness because Judas gave up Jesus for money, but the woman gave up money, stability for, for Jesus. Extravagant devotion surrounded by extravagant betrayal. And so we can look to her example. Maybe some of us already feel this way. We look to her, the example of the woman and like my dad say, Everything in moderation. She seems a little extreme. And Jesus would say, exactly. That's what devotion to me looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As uh, it challenges us, it convicts us, it comforts us, it reminds us of the gospel, Jesus, who you are, how you've loved us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us be radically devoted to you, to see you in our hearts as worth everything and to follow you with our whole hearts and lives. Lord, we love you and we pray for your help as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.